a story of a young pastor. He, he came to a new congregation, a new church body, and this young pastor immediately experienced a, a, a serious problem. Because on Sunday morning during the worship service, um, half the congregation would stand when their scripture was being read, and the other half would uh, remain seated, and they would shout at each other, whatever it was, insisting that the, uh, they were following the true tradition. Nothing the pastor, this young pastor, said or did helped solve the impasse, and finally, in desperation, the young pastor sought out the church's 99-year-old founder. He went to the uh, nursing home where he met that old pastor, and he poured out his troubles to him. He said, so tell me, he said, tell me, what's the tradition for the congregation? Do they stand when scripture is read, or do they, do they sit? <laughs> and the pastor said, no, no, um, they, they don't, um, either one. The wrong man responded, then it was a tradition for them to sit during the scripture uh, reading, and the pastor says, no, it wasn't, that wasn't the tradition either. Well, the young pastor said, what we have in our church right now is complete chaos. Half the people stand and shout, and the other half sit and they scream. The pastor said, ah, now that was the tradition. <laughs> You know, as a pastor, I can relate uh, to the frustration of that uh, young pastor because um, churches, amazingly enough, have a, a, a well-known reputation for fighting. And when that happens, uh, it brings with it a lot of um, heartache. It brings with it a lot of headaches. But I got to tell you, there's another way. There's another way, a better way. You can bring joy to your pastor. I was reminded of that when I read the Apostle Paul, um, his letter to the church in Philippi, and there he says to them, complete my joy, he tells that church. Now you have to understand that when Paul wrote those words, he was under house arrest in Rome, waiting for his trial. And he writes to those believers there in Philippi, uh, whom he loved, and he thanks them for their generous gift. See, they, they had brought him a great joy, not only because of their financial gift, but because he also saw in them that they were continuing to grow in their, their faith. He was also joyful for their partnership in the gospel. And for the fact that because of his imprisonment, many of the guards who were chained to him 24-7, they had come to follow Christ. Um, and because of his imprisonment, in fact, local pastors there in Rome were now more courageous. They were more bold in, in sharing the gospel. Paul was joyful for all of that. And there was many things there in the church of Philippi that brought Paul joy. It was their gift, their faith, their, their prayers, their, their love that they expressed to him. But there was something that he wanted them to do in order to make his joy complete. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, we are continuing our series 
called Better Together here as we uh, move ahead this uh, fall. Um, and here in, in Philippians 2, Paul has this very interesting phrase. Turn with me or look with me at chapter 2, verse 2. Look what he says here. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, Paul says, you can top my joy off <laughs> if I hear that you are united together. Interesting, isn't it? That their unity as a church, that that would make his, Paul's joy complete. When Paul uses that phrase, being of the same mind there in verse 2, he isn't asking for a uniformity of opinions. He isn't um, telling us that just because we all attend the same church, we should agree about everything. That's not his point. Rather, what he's asking for is a, is a total inward attitude of the mind that strives after the one thing which is greater than any human truth. Um, Mine, yours, anyone else's. He's asking for a unity of spirit that is held together by loyalty to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is essentially asking these, these believers here, he says, would you come together knowing that there is a larger purpose for us as a church and that we would have committed ourselves to loving one another and living in harmony together. Would you do this for me, he says? Because I know God made it possible for you to do that. In fact, back up in verse 1, look what he says here. Notice Paul uses four phrases here, and each of them with the little word if. Verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Um, now, I want you to understand, Paul, in those four phrases, is not wondering if each of those statements is true. Um, he's not questioning them. Um, he, he's not uncertain uh, about them. Basically, he's saying, listen, if you have any encouragement in Christ, and I know you do, it's kind of like me <laughs> saying to my, my son Jacob, saying, listen, if you're hungry, then let's, uh, then let's eat. Now listen, when I say that to my son Jacob, I'm not asking or wondering if he is hungry. I'm not asking if he's hungry or not. I, I'm telling him, since I know that you're hungry, then let's get something to eat. <laughs> Paul is doing the same thing here. So actually, we could replace that little word if there in that verse with the word since. Since you have encouragement from Christ to move you in this direction, since your hearts are secure and comforted in his love, since you sense the presence of the Spirit in your life and are aware of, of the Spirit's promptings, since God has given you tender and compassionate hearts which move you towards kindness to each other, then make my joy complete by being united together. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, says it this way. 
Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be where they become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to try to strive for closer fellowship. <laughs> That's Paul's appeal here. Paul's appeal is, look at Christ. Look back at your experience in Christ. Look all of those things that Christ has done, and when you do, your hearts, they will be drawn to each other. Since God has made it possible for you to do all of this, Paul says, then make my joy complete by living in harmony with each other, by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do you know what I've discovered really turns the lights out for people in their interest of spiritual matters? It's Christian hostility. You discover that? Christian infighting. People outside the family of God observe, I mean, they observe political infighting and ugly power struggles all the time, every day in their world. I mean, it's on full display out in Washington, D.C., isn't it? I mean, all you have to do is look at the city of Minneapolis and the politics going on here, and, and, and you see it, all this, this infighting taking place. People see it all the time in governmental affairs, in business sectors, at school board meetings, in institutions, in organizations, and it grieves them. I think it sickens them, personally. Many of the people outside the family of God, they have been victimized by those kinds of divisions and factions and struggles, power struggles in organizations. And not only is bickering and division seen, you know, in our government and in institutions, but I got to tell you, people experience it also in their families. And many have just come to the point where they say, will I ever be able to find a group or a community that I can belong to where people come together and they relate authentically? Will I ever be part of a community where people will shoot straight with one another. Where people will resolve conflict instead of trying to run from it. Where they'll resolve conflict by coming together and sitting down and talking and discussing the issues where people can agree to disagree and still be around each other and still love each other. Listen, these people are crying out where can I find a community of unified people who are doing something worthwhile together? I got to tell you, friends, that should be us. Right here. <laughs> I mean, the crowning glory of a church is that its members live in loving harmony with each other. I mean, wasn't that Jesus' prayer uh, for the church the night before he was crucified? Prayer for us. Jesus, 
praying to his father, said, my prayer is that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world will be convinced that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, Jesus prays. That's his prayer for us. His prayer for us is that we might be unified in harmony with one another as his church. So we have to ask, then how can that happen? What specifically can bring about this type of harmony and and, and unity in our church family? How can we be better together? (laughs) And Paul tells us in the next two verses, In fact, he lays out in pretty plain language, everyday language, he tells us that we are, um, tells us three attitudes and actions that we must stop, and then one attitude that we must continue to practice. Let's begin with the three attitudes and actions that we must stop. Now, first of all, we must stop acting out of selfish ambition. Look with me at verse three. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition. (laughs) Right there. Plain language. Selfish ambition insists on my way. Selfish ambition wants to be prominent. Selfish ambition makes others yield to what it says. Selfish ambition, what it does is it generates rivalries, doesn't it? And rivalries are guaranteed to destroy unity. Therefore, Selfish ambition must go. Second, we must stop being conceited. Look again at at verse 3. Look, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In the NIV, it translates it, we must do nothing out of vain conceit. Vain conceit is um, believing yourself to be more important than everyone else. A person motivated by vain conceit assertively, even arrogantly, claims to have the right opinion, even when they don't. (laughs) Vain conceit believes itself more deserving than anyone else. It assumes its thoughts and its desires and happiness matter more than anyone else's. And like selfish ambition, whenever vain conceit is present, unity is absent. Both attitudes, selfish ambition and vain conceit, cause dissension. They create conflict and lead to splits or departures. Then Paul gives us a third negative action and attitude that must go if we as a church are to live in harmony. Look with me at verse 4. Look what he says here. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Um, We must stop selfishly looking out for our own interests to the exclusion of uh, the interests of others. The verb that Paul uses here, it's very interesting. When he says to look, it means to, uh, to notice. It means to keep one's eye on. In other words, Paul is telling us to keep our eyes fixed on the good points of others rather than concentrate on our own on our own gifts and our own interests and our own abilities. 
So I think this church in Philippi was dealing with some of the same problems that every church kind of deals with, I think. The churches uh, Corinth dealt with these problems, namely that people were selfishly interested in only uh, themselves. See, unity cannot coexist with individualism or partisanship. Unity and harmony requires us to pay attention to things that interest and deeply concern others. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Life Together, lists seven principles for eradicating selfish ambition and vain conceit from Christian communities. I, I, listen to this list. I think I've got it on the, on the screen, yes. Look at this list. Number one, Christians should hold their tongues, refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother. Number two, Christians should cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that they, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners and can live in God's sight only by his grace. Three, Christians should listen long and patiently so they understand their fellow Christians' need. Four, Christians should refuse to consider their time and calling so valuable that they cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. Five, Christians should bear the burden of their brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. Six, Christians should declare God's word to their fellow believers when they need to hear it. And seven, Christians should understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs the service. Interesting list, don't you think? See, alongside these three commands of what we must stop doing, Paul also inserts a positive command, telling us what we must continue to do. Um, Look with me again. Middle of verse 3, look what he says here. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility. That's the linchpin that guarantees our unity and harmony. Humility says, it doesn't have to be my way because I can see that others would benefit from your way. Humility says, things don't necessarily have to please me because I can see that it's meeting the needs of others. Humility says that music is not what I would prefer. Um, The board decision kind of goes against what I would like. Refreshments are not handled the way that I would do it. (laughs) But that can be okay. Because what I want is not the deciding factor. What's good for others, that's the deciding factor. See, humility thinks of others ahead of itself. And when Paul says, hey, count others more significant than yourselves, he's not referring to one's ability or one's skill, but the other person in importance. Consider their needs, consider their interests as coming ahead of and more significant than yours, Paul is saying. Consider others more deserving than yourself. Sir Edmund Hillary in 1953 conquered Mount Everest. 
And consequently, in that same year, Hillary was knighted. In 1985, he was made New Zealand's highest commissioner to India and Nepal and Bangladesh. In 1995, he received British's realm, realm's highest award, the Order of the Gator, membership which is limited to only 24 individuals. But despite Hillary's achievements and rewards, it seemed as though he maintained a, a very humble outlook and readiness to serve others. On one of his many trips um, back to the Himalayas, Sir Edmund Hillary was spotted by a, a group of uh, uh, tourist climbers. They begged for a photo with the great man, and, and Hillary obliged. They handed him an ice pick so he would look the part and uh, set up for a photograph. Just then, another uh, climber uh, passed by the group, and not recognizing the man at the center of the photo, uh, strode up to Hillary and said, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice pick. Here, let me show you how to do it. <laughs> Everyone evidently, they stood in amazement as Hillary thanked the man, let him adjust the pick, and happily went on with the photograph. Friends, that's humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, was once asked to name the most difficult instrument to play. And without hesitation, he replied, the second fiddle. I get plenty of first violinists. But to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, now that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Listen, there's harmony in the church when there's humility in the people. When there's that kind of humility, each person considering others more important, more deserving than themselves, each per person looking out for the needs and interests of others, then there's harmony in the church. And when we make ourselves nothing together, together, then we become something. We're better together. Together we become the bride of Christ. Together we become living stones built into God's holy temple, unified and in harmony. And I got to tell you, when that happens, <laughs> you bring your pastor joy. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word of truth. Thank you for, God, what you modeled for us by going to the cross. God, thank you that you submitted yourself. Jesus, you submitted yourself to your Father in obedience. You, you lowered yourself, <laughs> became one of us so that we might have salvation. Thank you indeed. Father, might we learn from that. Might we um, imitate you and how we look to and treat one another. God, might you teach us, remind us what it means to be unified and in harmony together.
In your son's precious and holy name, amen.